Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and this is FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Mixcloud, a music streaming service, got off the ground and achieved profitability without any external funding, something highly impressive and unusual in the world of tech startups. Nikhil Shah told me the story. Myself and my co-founder Nico, we're you know, very, very good friends from university. I actually met him because he was a break dancer and I was a DJ. So we used to share the dance floor and we used to entertain together at Cambridge. And after graduating, we both spent a couple of years doing kind of conventional jobs. So I spent two years working as a brand consultant and Nico spent two years working as a wind energy consultant, as an engineer, because his background is engineering and my background is maths. And then the starting point in our entrepreneurial journey was when we had a bunch of inspiring friends getting involved in this tech world and it suddenly made us realize if our friends are doing it why can't we do it and there was actually in parallel another turning point in my life pretty much since I was 16 I bought my first set of turntables and I've always been doing music stuff on the side you know when I throughout my A-levels my university career and my first jobs I was always a club promoter a DJ making mixtapes and just probably spending more time on music than I was on my main pursuit <laughs> for my sins. So during my time as a brand consultant, I started a club night in London called Man Make Music with some other good friends and it was just going really well. You know, we, we were really proud of the success we were having. And there was one afternoon when I found myself in Paris for my day job. I was in this like very dry, to use a pun, a focus group uh, talking about dried soup. And at the same time, my phone was just ringing off the hook with text messages, emails, phone calls. Because that morning, me and my friend Amit had a full-page spread in the Metro for a party we were organising that weekend. That's the London The free Metro newspaper. is a free London morning newspaper, exactly. So we had this really great coverage for this event. And that was another turning point for me when I realised that this thing that I'm doing on the side with 10% of my time and energy is really going very well. And it's something that I love doing and really I should dedicate more time to it. So at that time, Nico was living in Paris, I was living in London, and both made the decision that we wanted to quit our jobs and start something. We didn't have much resources, we were just two young guys with jobs and and not much capital behind us. So the first thing we did was we made the classic mistake of thinking of grand ideas without thinking about solving problems. So we actually had this really fun idea initially that we spent probably about three or four months working on and it didn't end up really picking up momentum. But I'm gonna tell you about it anyway, because mm. I think it's fantastic and someone still needs to build it. So we called it Popido, which is popular knowledge in Latin, Popido. And the idea was that we wanted to build the Wikipedia of opinion, somewhere that catalogues and categorizes what the world thinks about things. Everyone we talked to thought it was a cool idea, and I still think it is, but it turned out that we just weren't 
in the right position to build something so grand. We had no experience as entrepreneurs and it's a really big idea. And it wasn't really something we had domain knowledge in. But also, I really firmly believe that without a real genuine interest and passion for the business you're building, it's really hard to go through those tough periods if you don't love it. That changed a lot when a few months later, me and Nico were sitting in the pub and we started just sharing stories about music and the latest DJs we're listening to and my experience trying to share my radio show on the internet, which was just very, very clunky at the time because there was no platform like Mixcloud that existed. We had this conversation and realized, hold on, like all of this Popedo stuff we're trying to do, we're thinking about it the wrong way. We're not solving a problem that we understand. When we started talking about radio and the DJ world, we just got it very instinctively. And we realized that there was an opportunity here. We started researching it, writing up a kind of vague pitch deck slash business plan. With Popedo, when we were questioning ourselves and critiquing the idea, asking ourselves tough questions, we couldn't answer them. What's the go-to-market strategy? Why would someone use it? Why would people contribute content when there isn't a community? We didn't have answers to those questions. When we were critiquing the idea for Mixcloud, we had answers to all the questions. And that gave us a lot of confidence. So that's what eventually led to us having, I guess, the confidence to quit our jobs and start working on it full time. So how did you get this thing going? Where were you yeah. based? And What we first did was we applied for funding from Y Combinator. Y Combinator is, I guess, the world's most successful and sought-after incubator for tech businesses based in the Valley. Got an interview, which is great, because it is very competitive. And we flew over to San Francisco for the interview with Paul Graham and the team. And I actually quit my job the day before the flight. So I didn't have any funding, we didn't have any backing and, and confidence that we could fund the idea, but I wanted to go to that interview knowing that whatever happens, we're going to do this. That was my attitude at the time. I just really knew that if I wasn't wholeheartedly in it, then I wouldn't really make the most of that trip and maybe it will come across an interview, who knows. Nico didn't quit his job, <laughs> FYI, but you know he did a few weeks later. Turns out we didn't get the funding, which was a shame, but... The trip was really inspiring. You met loads of entrepreneurs. You know, winding the clock back, if you cast your mind back to 2008, the London tech scene just didn't really exist. So there wasn't many places for us to go in London to meet entrepreneurs, to meet startups, and to be inspired. But going to the Silicon Valley that week for the interview was awesome because we came back with a huge amount of energy, passion, and enthusiasm. Streaming, it's not cheap. It involves equipment and right but not in the initial few months by this time i'd moved out into a warehouse because me and nico knew that we we're going to work on this business and he was just relocating from paris back to london and we were lucky to find this company called camelot so what they do their business model is to put people into unoccupied commercial spaces for an incredibly cheap rent but we're not actually tenants we're guardians in inverted commas so we, we essentially stopped the property from being squatted. To summarise it, I was a legal squatter, paying about 200 quid a month to live in a gigantic warehouse in London. And that was a really important ingredient for how we were able to build Mixcloud. What about the other costs? People, technology and capital yeah. you need? So we had to then persuade people to quit their jobs and work on this thing. So we were trying to build a team and we were trying to raise capital talking to lots of investors, pitching them on the idea, and in parallel, 
we met both Matt and Sam, Matt Clayton and Sam Cook, who both came on board and became our co-founders on the tech side. Mm. So they both are the product and engineering leads. So we're showing progress. We got this team together, started building and hacking together our first prototypes. So we knew that we had a few months to kind of build this initial product. And the ambition was that within six months, we'll have some investment. We'll move to some proper offices, start to hire people, pay ourselves a real salary and build a real business. Didn't turn out that way. It turned out that actually no one wanted to give us any money. And what we found is that investors don't say no. They say, yes, maybe come back in a few months. So we kept on getting lots of yes, maybes. And we kept on going back every few months with real progress. We were actually building a product with you know some great people that we somehow managed to persuade to donate their time. So what we did was manage to hustle together a team of people who wanted to work on this thing because they loved the idea or loved the vision. And everyone worked on it for sweat equity, including ourselves. So do you think it was the VCs not seeing something they wanted to see? To put it bluntly, I would say that maybe we were just terrible at pitching. (laughs) That's one perspective. I think the reality of it is that we just weren't the right business at the right time for those investors. The combination of factors. We were in a sector that was tough. It's a sector that didn't really have much of a track record within London within tech. So there weren't many investors who had an experience in it. And finally, at the time, investors in London were way more risk averse than they are now. And what we found is that the people we were talking to, they asked the classic kind of risk mitigation questions. How big is your market? You know, what's the business plan? A lot of stuff that was like, how will you monetize this? Whereas if we went to the US, maybe it would have been a different story. You know, how will you get to scale and then figure out how make money later? You know, there's that kind of difference in culture. The other difference in culture is that typically, at the time, investors in the US were former entrepreneurs, whereas most of the investors we met here in the UK were former bankers. It's a very different conversation on the other side of the table from an entrepreneur versus a banker. And so if you're not raising money, what did it make you do? What would you say this actually is, is yeah. a good effort for not raising money? I mean, money? I, I, we've obviously reflected on this a lot and we've been asked this question a few times, like, what would you have done differently? And it's such a difficult question to answer. I don't have any regrets. Like, I don't feel like we needed the capital because we've managed to now build a platform with really great reach and a real business. And there's no guarantees if we had capital that we would have actually spent it wisely. There are plenty of examples of companies that raise money and don't go anywhere. And there are equally plenty of examples of companies that don't raise money and build a successful business, but they're just less talked about because they don't have that milestone capital raise, which is an easy thing to write about in in the press. And you have lots of war stories now, how you came through that. Yeah, okay, it's funny when we tell this story that I don't wanna paint the wrong picture that we were like living out of sleeping bags and in the corner of a cold, dusty warehouse. Far from it, ultimately we are fortunate, educated middle-class people with parents that will, you know, look after us and, What we managed to do was that we found ways to make money on the side because obviously a platform like Mixcloud pre-launch isn't going to generate revenue. So Nico, Matt, myself, we were consulting, we were organizing club nights, DJing, doing whatever we could to make money to cover our own cash flow for our lives. But the requirement was much lower because we were spending less. And I changed my lifestyle a lot. I wasn't traveling as much. I wasn't eating out expensive restaurants. There are some funny stories of the experience living in the warehouse. 
I mean, there's one that was actually written about in, in an article in the FT with Robert Cookson of not being able to get broadband connected into the warehouse. So we had to build the business using those little 3G broadband dongles. So I think we got three or four of them for 15 quid each a month. And we managed to get the products into beta and we launched it and we had all these people uploading content. But we had a rule in the office that we weren't allowed to listen to Mixcloud because we had a cap on our bandwidth in the office. <laughs> so somewhat ironic. But yeah, my other favourite story is when we did a consultancy project with Cambridge Judge Business School. And we had three MBA students from the Judge Business School doing a consultancy piece on the mixed car business. And for their debrief, when they'd finished the project, they came over to our office in inverted commas, which is our warehouse slash bedroom, with their dean, who is the dean of the Cambridge Judge Business School, Dame Sandra Dawson. So we forced her to drive to this weird industrial business park in the deep, dark depths of northwest London. And she walked into our giant 65,000 square foot warehouse. And that morning we had to take Nico's mattress out of the office because he slept in the corner and move it around the corner and reshuffle the room so it looked like an office before Dame Sandra Dawson arrived. And then we did the debrief, she left and we put the mattress back in the corner. Now you've moved on from mattress moving. Businesses often have to change and adapt. Did, yeah. Was bootstrapping part of that process? I think so. I think we learnt the value of being resourceful very early because we were forced to learn that, that value. And actually, about a year, year and a half into the journey, we did actually have some offers. So, you know, I was being somewhat modest when I said that no one wanted to fund us. And that's the point at which we did decide to decline because... The process took too long and the money on the table was just wasn't quite enough. The dilution was too big and we'd already made enough progress on our plan to know that, hey, there's momentum behind this thing now. So at that point, we made the decision to not take capital. And at that point, that's a decision to remain lean, a decision to be small and resourceful. And do you yeah. think you're always going to be like that? Presumably, people are going to now come knocking at your door more often. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm never going to say never because... Who knows, you know, we have to compete with some very big players and at some point that may require more resources. So we're really very much not averse to it. It's just um, that's been our story thus far. Daniel Eisenberg teaches entrepreneurship at Babson College in the US. He offered some insights into the advantages and disadvantages of bootstrapping. The lean startup has the advantages as long as you can survive. The real issue is can you pay the bills long enough to prove your business actually can generate some income. But I think that's much, much more common than the VC model. The VC industry is actually quite a tiny industry. In the United States, there are about 800 or 900 VC funds, only about two thirds of which are active. What about a company like Mixcloud? Is it important to be making a profit or building the big name like Spotify does? Well, it sort of goes back and forth. Making a profit is a decision. Because when you decide to invest in your growth, then you cut your profits if you're bootstrapping. And a lot of companies do that. They'll say, I'm not going to grow very fast intentionally in order to make a profit and pay the bills. Or on the other hand, I have enough money to reinvest it into the firm. A lot of it, by the way, depends on personal situation. If you're in a personal situation where you don't need to pay very many personal bills, in the United States anyway, paying back your student loans is a really big deal. It has a huge impact on entrepreneurship. It's also not unusual to see what I call spouse equity. 
you know, you have a family or partner and you, and you make a decision with your partner saying, you know what, you'll make the salary, I'll build the new company that takes up resources. And, you know, as long as that's done explicitly, it can work pretty well. Is it the case that a player like Mixcloud can beat operations like Apple Music or Spotify? Well, I heard the founder of Pandora speak. They actually had dozens of people working for two years in Pandora without a salary until they raised their first institutional funds. That's lean startup taken big. They apparently generated a huge amount of goodwill and therefore they could compete or create a very large new market along with Spotify and, and the others. So it's certainly possible. By the way, the test, as I understand in Mixcloud, it's it's the professional market, it's the DJs and others. Building a product that customers will actually pay for, there's something extraordinarily healthy about it. We often assume it's the person who raises the largest sum who's going to be the winner. Well, it may. We still have to see how these things play themselves out. But that's a relatively new phenomenon, and it's an interesting one. But again, this is one of the downsides of the so-called unicorn phenomenon, which started out over a decade ago as a a good idea. But it's become something that has distorted, in my view anyway, distorted our focus on markets. There actually are customers out there that we have to satisfy. And looking just at the paper value of an investment or of a company does not really reflect the value that's been created for the marketplace. In the overall scheme of things, what continues to sort itself out is companies that have healthy cash flows. They're the ones that succeed. So it's a strategic decision whether in a particular year or two years you decide to raise more cash so that you can pour it back into creating new products, services, entering new markets, etc. But there's a huge risk in doing that, and that is that you will lose sight of a sustainably, profitably growing company. That's a real risk in the unicorn movement. I asked Nikhil what advice he would give to others in his situation. One of the things that we did very early on is we read a book called The Mythical Man Month and got about 20% through it because it's a very dense software book. But the guy talks about this theory around resourcing for software projects. So he talks about the idea that if work is perfectly partitionable, then there is an inverse correlation between time and people i.e. if you add more people to a task, it takes less time, only if the task is simple and perfectly partitionable. If the task is complex and not partitionable, then as you add more people, it starts to reduce in time until you get to the turning point and the inflection point where there is an overhead of communication and management and project cost. And this is definitely the case when it comes to complex software projects. So... Prior to reading that book, you know, I think I had, like most people, this kind of naive idea that we just need to hire as many people as possible to build our business, to build the product and to get it to market and to build the community and all the things you need to do. And that book, it really radically changed my perspective towards building a team. It made me realize that if you're smart about it and you hire really capable people where everyone does the job of three people, then you can be more lean and actually avoid a lot of the the cost of having a big team. And that's essential when you are lean and bootstrapped. Next time, we talk to Al Shariot, who gave up a career as a UN lawyer to co-found a food company using ethically sourced coconut products. Listen next week to hear his story. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous episodes by going to our special page 
ft.com forward slash startup. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.